You would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you today. It's a beautiful day. into the comparison game. We tend to categorize. And sometimes that can be embarrassing. And sometimes it can be flat out wrong. But it does seem to be kind of human nature to compare, to categorize. And when you think about this, I want to talk about the most unusual comparison made in all the New Testament. Before I do that, let me show you how comparisons can sometimes be embarrassing. Last year at Polishing the Pulpit, at the end of one of the sessions, we're going to another session, Sheree and I. There were 5,100 people at last year's Polishing the Pulpit. So there's an awful lot of people. And from behind, I'm walking behind this individual. I see a fellow about 6'4 or 6'5, just a shade under Carl Ivanhoe. I see a fellow that is very muscular, has some gray around the temples and all. And I say, that is a brother that I'm really close to, and as a matter of fact, I taught him in school of preaching about 30 years ago at Brown Trail. And I know you won't believe this, but somewhat uncharacteristically, because I was so glad to see him, I ran up behind this guy and tapped him on the back of his head. I could feel Cherie saying to me, you know, in slow motion, No, Mike, don't do this. Because it wasn't who I thought it was. <laughs> and the guy's wife is somewhat upset that somebody has run behind them and tapped their husband on the back of the head. And I was, of course, quite embarrassed by that. Now, before you laugh too much, have you ever made a dumb comparison? Only to be embarrassed? It turned out when I told that brother who I thought he was, he was so happy about the thing, he told his wife just to get over it. So uh, thankfully I was saved because I didn't want to have to have a, a fight there at Polishing the Pulpit with a six foot four, six foot five guy that was probably going to hurt me. But anyway, we all make comparisons and sometimes they can be embarrassing. We better be careful about the comparisons that we make. Because sometimes not only can they be embarrassing, 
they can be insulting. And not just that, they can be blasphemous. If someone were to call Muhammad a snake, there would be a number of people gravely insulted and they would consider that blasphemous. Before you jump on that, what if someone were to call Jesus a snake? Wouldn't you consider that insulting and blasphemous? I want you to know someone did compare Jesus to a snake in the New Testament. And that someone is Jesus himself. In John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. When you study the Bible, friends, context is everything. Context is everything. The incident to which Jesus refers in John 3, 14 and 15, is found in your Bible in Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. Open your Bible to that passage, please. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. Let's look at that in its context there, then consider it a little more in its context in John chapter 3, and consider it in the universal context ultimately, all right? So let's look at Numbers 21, 5 through 9. In Numbers 21, 5 through 9, the Edomites, who were cousins of Israel, would not allow Israel to cross in their land. And the Israelites were beside themselves. They'd just been given a fairly significant victory. And they're thinking, why don't we go ahead and take on the Edomites too? They're not allowing us. They're supposed to be distant relatives of ours. And they are saying, no, you can't come through our territory to get where you're going. Why don't we just go ahead and take them too? And so the passage says in Numbers 21, 5 through 9, that the people of Israel, the Israelites, murmured and complained. And as a result of this, and they, they talked about, you know, uh, nothing but manna and God's provision really wasn't adequate enough, God sent poisonous snakes to go upon the people. Many people were bitten by these snakes and more than a few died and there is a change of tune on the part of God's people at this point and they go to Moses and they say please intercede on our behalf so that God will do something about all of these serpents because we're dying there is no cure 
And so God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to place it upon a pole so that people throughout the camp could see. And by looking upon the bronze serpent, by looking upon the bronze serpent, after having been snake-bitten and the venom coursing through their bodies, they could live. Look and live. Numbers 21.9. See it? And it's obvious that they are not looking to the snake as their savior, but God who sent the serpents as a type of judgment. Really what you're doing is I am acknowledging how much I need you, that you're the judge, that you're the king, and that I'm not. Even though we have a tendency to compare and categorize as if we're the experts, we're the judges, and we are in charge. Side note. 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 4 and following. 700 plus years later. In the time of Hezekiah the king. 700 plus years after this event. There were people who were worshipping the bronze serpent. Isn't that pretty well true to human nature? We look to the object rather, the picture, rather than the person who really makes the salvation possible. Now take a minute and go back to John 3. And let's look at John 3 in context. And why would Jesus compare himself to, of all things, a snake? Fellas, I don't recommend calling your wife a snake. But you may think this is coming from the same guy that tried to, uh, to tap uh, Terrence Dendy on the back of his head only to find out it wasn't Terrence Dendy, the preacher. We know we better be careful in the comparisons that we make. Or it can be embarrassing, insulting, maybe even blasphemous. Now in John 3, in John 3, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. You see that in the opening verses. He is probably one of the preeminent teachers within Judaism. Look at John 3 and verse 10. And yet as Jesus speaks here in John 3, Nicodemus has a problem with understanding what Jesus is saying, John 3.10. He has a problem with believing what is being said, John 3.12. And so John 3.14 and 15 is an illustration used by Jesus to help Nicodemus understand and see and believe what he's been talking about. Now here's the point, Brother Bill. Sandwiched between the new birth 
John 3, 3 through 7. And the best known verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. Or John 3, 14 and 15. It's John 3, 14 and 15. And John 3, 14 and 15 is given from Jesus to answer this question. Look at John 3, 9. What's the question that Nicodemus asked? How can this be? This idea of entering the kingdom, a new birth, water and the Spirit. How can this be? Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. See how Jesus is answering the question of Nicodemus. There is no entering the kingdom of God. You, of all people, should know this. There is no entering the kingdom of God unless the king comes. There is no entering the kingdom of God apart from a different birth. It's not going to simply be Israelite heritage in your bloodline. It's going to be the blood of Jesus. And so the context of John 3 makes this passage really significant. I don't know if there are two verses in the Gospel of John that pack more information that need to be thought about than John 3, 14 and 15. Now, our context. Our context the Bible uses comparisons. The Bible uses metaphor and simile. Especially in the Old Testament of things that would happen in the New. Of people and circumstances of the New. And what I'd like to do is bring out five essential comparisons for us to think about from John 3, 14 and 15. How we can relate to what was going on in Numbers 21 and how we can relate to what was going on in John 3 with Nicodemus and how the life situation and the plight is really not all that different. Are you with me? Essential lesson number one. Because of sin, all of us are under a curse. Because of sin, all of us are under a curse. We are under God's judgment as a consequence of that sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and verse 10. Sin separates us from God, our creator, our sustainer, our Lord, our friend. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. God is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. Habakkuk 1, 12 and 13. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 and Romans 5 and verse 12 Because of sin and a choice that we make to not walk in the ways of God and what's right. We, like Israel, are under a curse. And we, religious though we may be, like Nicodemus was, here is the teacher of Israel, one of the preeminent teachers of Judaism within Israel, and the Lord says, how is it that you're a teacher of Judaism and you don't understand or believe or get the things that I'm saying? Some of the people in the world that need salvation the most are religious people who don't understand or really believe what the Bible says. Like Nicodemus. Because of sin, we are all under a curse. Essential lesson number two. God graciously provides just the remedy we need. God graciously provides just the remedy we need. You stop and think about it in Numbers 21. The people go to Moses and say, please talk to God about this. Intercede on our behalf. We're so embarrassed and ashamed and we realize we've insulted God and blasphemed God. We don't even know if we can talk to him ourselves right now. Please go to God on our behalf. And Moses does. And just the remedy needed is graciously provided. Consider this with me from Numbers 21. The serpent would be the object of their condemnation or their salvation. Isn't that true? The object of their salvation or their condemnation, the serpent would be. But really God behind it, you understand. But they're still told to look upon the serpent, the serpent and live. What a gracious provision. Just the thing needed. Now, if, if this were probably happening today, every pharmaceutical company in the world would start dealing with anti-venom, trying to deal with the serpent, Right? But if this was really of God, it wouldn't work. How about that? Because God has to graciously provide the remedy. Man, in his initiative and ingenuity, couldn't have done anything. You know, they could talk about it. Really, we don't have a big problem with snakes around here. Or on the other side of the coin, let's go on a snake-killing hunt and kill all of those vipers we possibly can would either have solved the problem, denying the existence of the serpents, 
or trying to have a snake killing project and wipe them out. Some would probably have thought we need to make some legislation, anti-serpent legislation. Anti-serpent legislation will do away with our problem. Is that really going to solve it? Is it? Some are going to look to Moses, hey, you're our leader. Is Moses going to be able to solve it? As great a man as he was, Moses was only great because he served God. And when we lose sight of that, we become idolaters. So there's all kinds of possible uh, ways to get around it, but the gracious provision of just the appropriate remedy is made by God. You couldn't save yourself by climbing up that pole upon which the brass serpent was. I'm going to climb up this pole. Steve, could, you, could a person have been saved in Numbers 21 by saying, I believe with all my heart that God will save me, but I am not going to look upon that serpent because what we do has nothing to do at all with salvation. Would that person have been saved? Just saying. Now we go to Nicodemus in John 3. Begin with John 1. Go to John 1, 1 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, verses 14 through 18. God came down. You see, in Numbers 21... The image of a serpent without the venom, without the sting of death is the way in which they can be saved as they look to God. In John 3 and for us today, the way that we can be graciously saved by the remedy perfectly appropriate for the problem is through the Son of God. A snake in Numbers 21, but God's Son in John 3, 16. Wow. A picture in Numbers 21. The reality in John 3. And you see, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher in John 3 and verse 2. And I have no question in my mind that he's sincere when he does it. But Nicodemus really has no idea who he's talking to. He is talking to the one who is God's gracious provision for our sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. He shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21 through 23. He came to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19, 10. 
number three. Essential truth number three. Think about this. The remedy must be lifted up. For you, extremely technical, perfectionistic, tendencied individuals, Jesus does not liken himself so much to a snake as he likens himself to being lifted up as the bronze serpent was in John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John 3, 14, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should have eternal life. Now follow me for just a minute. Must. See that in John 3, 14? You see it? Does it mean you ought or you should? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Ladies and gentlemen, that has to do with a divine imperative. He is sent, John 3, 18. God did not send, 17, did not send his world, uh, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's sent for this very purpose. To be lifted up. And here's what it means, Brian, and it fits well with your Lord's Supper meditation. He was delivered for our offenses, his crucifixion. And he was raised for our justification, his exaltation and glorification. When you see lifted up, Open your Bible to John 8, 28, because the expression is used four times in this book. John 3, 14, he must be lifted up. Must. Heaven's imperative. Turn to John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when he goes to the cross in his crucifixion and is lifted up, suspended between earth and heaven, if you will, he will be glorified, but you will know that I am he. Then you'll know that I'm he and I do nothing by my own authority. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John 12. John 12, look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Look at John 12, 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And then verse 33 in the middle of the two verses. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. A lifted up death. His crucifixion, but the resurrection and the glory that would follow. Now another word or two about must. That little word, heaven's imperative. When you look at 
John 3, 14. He must be lifted up. Why? Because God promised that this was going to take place so that our sins could be dealt with. That's why. Look at John 4, 24. Must. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You think that that's an optional matter or does it sound like heaven's imperative? Look at John 3.30 and the outlook, the attitude of John the baptizer. John 3.30, same chapter. He says of himself, I must decrease and what of Jesus? He must increase. Heaven's imperative. Look at John chapter 9 and verse 4. John 9 verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. I must, Jesus says. The night comes no man can work. Heaven's imperative. Just a few examples. But think about this. Because of sin... All of us are under a curse. God himself provides graciously the perfect remedy we need. The remedy must be lifted up. Essential truth number four. We must... Trust in the remedy to save. We must trust in God's divinely provided remedy to save. Y'all hear me? We must trust in God's divinely and graciously given provision, His remedy to save. They refused to look at the serpent in Numbers 21. They would have died. And if we refuse to look in faith to Jesus, if we refuse to take the medicine, let's use that expression, to take the medicine, take your medicine. Here is the medicine. What God does through Jesus at the cross for our sin cure. If God says that, how can anyone look elsewhere for a viable solution or remedy? What I want you to see is this. In Numbers 21, 9, it was look and live. In John 3, 14 and 15, it is believe, properly believe and live. See it? That whoever believes in him should have eternal Now, Terry, you handy? 
you awake, I haven't put you to sleep yet? Okay, don't normally put Terry to sleep. All right, John 3, 36. Stand and read that for everybody. Eternal life. Think about quality of life and quantity of life. And John is a book that accentuates eternal life. but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of living God, and that believing have life in his name. John 20, verses 30 and 31. What belief means is looking to God and acting upon His will. Isn't that really what it meant in Numbers 20, uh, 21? Didn't it mean look to God and act upon His will, properly act on His will? Didn't it? That's what he's trying to say to Nicodemus. And you know, think about Nicodemus. And he is somebody we ought to have a Lord's Supper meditation on because after Jesus died and after he arose, and surely, Brother Clay, by the time Pentecost came in Acts 2, Nicodemus understood more about what Jesus was trying to tell him, even though he was his own enemy through ignorance and dullness in John chapter 3. You see, he had to get over his position. And his prominence and pride maybe as a leader of the Jews. As one of the premier teachers. Maybe some of us need to get over our pride and power and sense of prominence to trust in Jesus and have eternal life. Essential lesson number five. Trusting and obeying Jesus equals life. Trusting and obeying Jesus equals life. Any other way equals what? You know the answer. So as we bring things to a close, I find this to be such an unusual comparison. But when you get the comparison really being that the snake, the serpent, and the Son of God were each lifted up. And by each being lifted up, they would either be the object of people's salvation or condemnation. We see the point. The lifted up, glorified Jesus will either be the reason for our salvation... Or why 
we are condemned in, in, in refusing the gracious provision God has made in His Son. You know, you look at this passage, John 3, 14 and 15, and to me it, it explains the new birth. It explains what entering the kingdom is all about. It explains John chapter 3, verse 16. It explains John 3, 36. Those that don't believe or don't obey the Son will be condemned. And here's the reason. Because of the one whom God provided as the gracious provision and remedy for our sin, we must turn to Him. There's no other way. A person who wants to do that has no problem with faith, repentance, and baptism. And I'm going to tell you why. You look at John chapter 2. Was the water in John 2 when Jesus turned water into wine, was that water initially just water? Was it? Sure it was. Then you see the reference to the new birth in John 3, 3 through 7, water and the Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 23, there is much water there. Is that water literal? Is it? Sure. In John 4, the woman who would go draw water at the well. Is that literal? Yes. Then what is so heinous a sin about believing that the water of John 3 is water? And that we connect with the merits of Christ's death and burial and resurrection when we are baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Maybe you're like Nicodemus and have a hard time understanding, or maybe you're like him and you're having a hard time believing. If there is a God in heaven, and if he is a God who keeps his word, do not argue with the teaching of John 3. Let us stand and sing.